You're now listening to Report to Wyoming, a K2 radio news podcast that explores real issues in Natrona County. For today's podcast, I talked to Adriana Wogan. She's a young woman who was placed in the foster care of Stephen and Kristen Marler when she was a little girl. It's important to note that Stephen Marler is currently facing charges in Natrona County for sexually abusing four different children. Adriana is one of the alleged victims. K2 Radio News already spoke to Cambria Marler, one of the first alleged victims to speak out against Stephen Marler publicly. After we published her story, Adriana contacted us and asked if she could share hers as well. We waited until Stephen Marler's case was bound over to district court. At this time, he has yet to make a plea. He is considered innocent unless proven guilty. This is Adriana's story. At this point, these are mere allegations. I would also like to add a trigger warning. This episode covers content that may be disturbing to some. We talk about alleged occurrences involving suicidal ideation, sexual, and physical abuse. I grew up in Casper. Um, It was just me, my dad, my two older brothers, and um, my two younger sisters. We um, lived out towards Barnum. I was in, like, the middle of (laughs) nowhere-ish. When you were growing up, did you have a feeling that maybe things weren't right at home, substance abuse, whatever it was, did you start to go like, hmm, maybe this isn't normal? So my dad passed away in 2010 um, from suicide. And after his death, my mom didn't really take things super well. And probably about less than a year after his death, we moved with her new boyfriend to Cheyenne. And while we were living in Cheyenne, things were a little odd. We noticed a lot of strange people coming in and out of the house and people we had never met. And my mom became very isolated from us. We only saw her a handful of hours out of the day. Mm. I think that was the moment it was kind of like, oh, something seems funny. How old were you at this time? At the time, I was, I think I had just turned six when we had moved. Okay. Are you the eldest of the Wogan girls? Yeah, I'm the eldest of the three. Okay. So who was taking care of you? Uh, it was my older brother, Dryden, at the time. Um, Dryden is honestly my best friend. Um, he was only, you know, a teenager at the time, and he stepped in and took on the role of being a parent. And he was the one who made breakfast and did homework and laundry. Yeah, at what point were you removed from your home? I want to say we had moved back from Cheyenne and moved back into the same place we had been living when my dad was still around. I want to say it was still winter-ish time. The catalyst for it all coming undone was kind of odd because we had moved back to Casper from Cheyenne because my mom had broken up with her boyfriend and... My mom was getting sober, and it was all going really well, but it was, um, we went to school at a bar in an elementary, my sisters and I did, and despite the fact my mom was getting sober, she was still out of the house a lot, and the school nurse decided to come check in at our house in the middle of the summertime and realized, you know, my mom wasn't there, and thought it was just weird that my mom wasn't there, but Hmm. I think... I think it all falling apart was more of the fact that despite, you know, my mom trying her best and doing her best, it was just too much of a struggle on her dealing with the grief of my dad and then never getting better. And then it just all kind of fell apart. 
first were you placed in the custody of a family member or did you go right into the foster care system we were given custody of us to our grandmother my mom's mom her name's crystal she's uh, she's wonderful (laughs) okay and what was it like when you moved in with her so at the time my grandma was a full-time caretaker for her disabled brother ed and it really wasn't too big of a deal when we moved in with her because she'd always been a constant in our life and she made sure you know that we still knew that our mom loved us and this wasn't our fault and that everything was going to be fine and she and incorporated us into everything you know she did a lot of baking and stuff she had her own business and we got to help out with that Oh, nice. Okay. How long did you live with Grandma before you got moved? Uh, I want to say we lived with my Grandma for maybe six months to a year. Oh, nice. Okay. And then when did you first learn that you would be taken from her? So it was towards the end of the school year, and our DFS workers at the time, um, Jennifer Schumacher and Cindy Sweet stopped by for a visit. We thought it was just one of their regular check-in visits. And they asked us, they were like, what do you guys think about going to like a place for the summer? And I was, we thought that was weird. I was like, what kind of place? And they were like, it would only be for the summer and you get, they have chickens and sled dogs and they live on the mountain and you could do all these fun things and, you know, as little kids, as a nine-year-old, you're like, hey, that sounds pretty cool. And my younger sisters didn't know any better. They were like chickens and dogs. They thought it was going to be a blast. Mm. And I didn't know we were going to be staying up there. They had convinced us it was just for the summer that we would be coming back. How long did you end up staying there? Ballpark. Stay, uh... At the Marlers, we ended up staying up there for 15 months, I think. Can you remember driving up Casper Mountain Road, just going up the anticipation and what you were feeling at the time? I remember this very well because I've been thinking about this since this whole thing restarted. I remember driving up there, and at first I was super excited because my grandma and Dryden had both gone with us, so I was like, okay, this is cool. And we didn't know at the time driving up there that Dryden wasn't going to be allowed to be moved with us. And we went up there and they gave us a tour of the home. You know, we got to see the chickens, got to pet the dogs and everything. And then we went inside of the house and we were in the living room when um, the DFS workers, you know, brought our bags inside. And then we were given the whole say goodbye to your grandma and your brother thing because they're not coming back. And I remember just sitting there, just scream crying, and I didn't want to let go of my brother. And um, our caseworkers were trying to pull us apart from our grandma and our brother, and I just could never grasp the concept that why were we coming up here, but Dryden wasn't coming with us. You know, Dryden went with us everywhere. And he was your protector and your guardian in a way. Yeah, he was the only person who'd ever been there. He'd been the only constant in my life that didn't just up and disappear. Oh, that hurts my heart. Can you 
remember either um or to your recollection excuse me were the marlars nurturing in the beginning yeah so at the very beginning everything seemed normal like just your average nuclear family kind of thing and then everything seemed all calm and everybody seemed happy and then about four days in I was laying in my bedroom that they had given us and the door was open and our bedroom faced the kitchen their um, four-year-old came down the stairs and she was supposed to be in bed already and she had come downstairs because she wanted to tell Kristen goodnight well Kristen really wasn't having it and kept telling her to go to bed and she wasn't listening. And I watched Kristen pick her up and like throw her a good four or five feet down towards the hallway and was telling her just she needed to go to bed, was just yelling at her. And she ended up going up the stairs just crying. And I felt awful. Was this the first time you'd witnessed abusive behavior in the Marler house? Yeah, that was the first time. It was about four days in. At what point did you start to get a little fearful about yourself even? Was that it? I think it started getting weird when I realized um, we weren't allowed to shower by ourselves. You know, me and my sisters, if we were taking a shower, all three of us had to be in the shower at the exact same time. And there wasn't a shower curtain. It was just one of the clear glass doors. And somebody always had to be sitting in there with us, whether it was one of their daughters or if it was Kristen somebody always had to be in the bathroom with us we weren't ever allowed unattended now one of the anomalies about your situation is that you were never adopted by the Marlers and yet Stephen Marler allegedly started to sexually abuse at least one of you so it seemed like a lot of his victims were the girls that he adopted. I don't know if he thought that would be mm, just safer, but in your case, it's different. So I I do think he he thought it was going to be a safer thing. And the thing is with the whole adoption thing is, I think that they thought they were going to be able to adopt us. They had let us already pick out our brand new chosen names and, you know, we had like a futures planned out with them already which was beyond strange to me because we weren't even there like six months before we picked out our new names and were they k names yeah i had chosen the name kaylee and i can't exactly remember the ones my sisters picked but they were something elaborate because they were running out of k names what was the conversation like for the rationale to change your name it was it was more of like a we sat down and it was like a well you know you guys could stay up here right and you guys could live up here with the chickens and the dogs and it was more of like a manipulation thing trying to make us think that if we stayed there we'd get to enjoy all these nice things and if we went home to our mom it was going to be awful and that she didn't love us and every time we didn't do something they wanted us to we weren't going to see our mom for even longer so at this point, was there any sexual abuse? The sexual abuse started about six six to nine months in, and it started out as back massages, which are so strange to me because only the girls were allowed to give the back massages to um, Steve, not the boys. The boys never had any 
um, involvement in it at all. So this would have been something just in the public, like, you know, in a, in a living room or something where everybody can see, but it's a back massage. Yeah. So only the girls gave Steve the back massage and they were always done either in the living room or in like a weird space between the kitchen and the dining room. Always Mm -hmm. open. Okay. And this, I've heard the assistant district attorney prosecuting the case refer to daddy tax. And I wasn't sure, was that, is daddy tax the massage or something else? It's the massages, yeah. Okay. So that seems fairly benign, and then it progresses. Yeah, so it started out as the massages, and probably about, I'd say, around the seven or eight month mark, it turned into him coming into our my bedroom that I shared with my sister and um, his second oldest daughter. And his oldest daughter was never in the room when it happened. They were always upstairs watching TV or playing on the Xbox or just never in the room or downstairs where it was happening. Mm. And it started with him coming into my room and he would always wait till either my sister was asleep or what he thought was asleep. At first it was a lot of um, like leg touching, thigh rubbing. It was all just over clothes at first. And did you know right away that that was not appropriate? Just a feeling like this is not just a, a fatherly touch. I never did well with touching in general as a kid. Um, and I, I felt like it was wrong to start with because I was like, I really don't know this guy, you know, and nobody else has ever touched me this way. or It, it just felt wrong. Did you try to tell Kristen? I was afraid of Kristen for a whole different set of reasons. She was very more on the physical side of the abuse and definitely the verbal side of it all. She um, used to drag us around the house by our necks. She had acrylic nails done all the time. Never once saw her without them. And she would dig them in the back of our neck and like drag us around when we weren't listening like drag us to our bedroom or drag us to the living room or wherever she was going to have us sit. When you were there at most, how many kids were there? Oh, so there was the 12, the 12 adopted and biological. There was us three. And then we had kids from respite every once in a while. But right before we moved, um, Two more came up there. Um, they were one of my mom's boyfriend's nieces. Were you happy to see, or were they happy to see you, I should say? They were ecstatic. You know, they had been coming over to my mom's house while we had been up on the mountain. And, you know, they had seen our pictures and they had played with our toys. And they were so excited to, you know, see somebody else. And I... I just felt awful because I was like, as much as I'm happy to see, you know, a familiar face, I couldn't believe that these two little girls were coming here. The youngest one was only three or four at the time, and I just couldn't help but think like, oh my God, not like this. Among you guys, the all of you children, how did you protect yourselves in any way? Was there anything, it sounds like everybody was kind of out for themselves at times or in survival mode. How were you able to... I don't know, do little things for each other to bear it. 
we were all really fighting for ourselves. You know, Cambria and I, we really did try to be friends at the beginning. You know, we were same age. We just tried to be friends for the most part, but then slowly it turned into we're fighting for our survival. And sometimes Cambria and I would fight. You know, she, we used to pull each other's hair and bite each other and fight each other in hopes that, you know, one of us can prove that we're better than the other. And, you know, it was just a constant battle for whoever was proving that they were worth more, pretty much. I think for our listeners, it might be helpful to kind of give a picture of what your schedules were like. So you would wake up in the morning and then breakfast? No, so we got up at like 5.30 or 6, and it was never breakfast first. Everybody came downstairs, and we sat around the table, and we did Bible study, which was Steve just reading from the Bible while we all sat there and listened. We weren't allowed to put our heads down or rest on the table. We had to sit with our backs straight and pay attention. If you got caught like falling asleep, you had to stand up and just stand the rest of the time, and that lasted till about seven-ish when everybody would start their day and get ready depending on the day you know my sisters and I would take a shower 15 minutes at max get dressed and Steve would take us down the mountain to a bus stop um, by his work so that we could go to school Hmm. so you guys were were you ever homeschooled My little sister, Dakota, was. Dakota was only four at the time, and instead of enrolling her in preschool, they chose to just homeschool her there. Let's talk about, like, your basic needs. Food. What kind of, like, did you feel like you had nutritious, healthy meals? Food was selective. So, while sometimes we were provided, you know, the whole three square meals a day thing, sometimes it was barely even that most of the times it was just dinner we didn't really eat breakfast in the morning because we were all either shooed out of the house or the others had to start their schoolwork pretty early and lunch on like the weekends when we were there wasn't really a thing there was like this snack bucket and I say that with like quotes because it was really just like a thing of stale popcorn and like craisins and that was it and you only got to eat out of there if you had like either done all your schoolwork or you had to like do something for somebody else and then you were allowed to have something out of the snack bucket but other than that it was very few and far between till dinner time and then what kind of dinners uh for the most part their um their second oldest daughter kylesia made dinner for the most part and when she made dinner it would be actual food sometimes, like things like um, chicken noodle soup or spaghetti squashed, which was disgusting. That's like a whole traumatic event. It was like cold squash, like not even like warm squash with like cold spaghetti sauce. It was like the worst thing I've ever eaten ever. Oh, so I'm just going to venture here that you were forced to eat it and it didn't go well. We were all forced to eat it. I... I ate it and was fine, but my um, my little sister, Dakota, she was four, and Dakota has always been, like, a super picky eater. But with this, 
she refused to eat it and she sat there and she cried and she cried and she wouldn't eat it so eventually they moved her upstairs to sit at this little table that was outside of steve and Kristen's bathroom door and she sat up there until she ate it and she sat there and cried well until like the early morning and eventually she started eating it but she was crying so hard that she ended up throwing it up and then they ended up forcing her to eat and throw up off the plate too and dakota's just never had a healthy relationship with food after that and i can't really blame her for that yeah so then you guys go to bed and it resets um, did you try to tell anyone at school what was going on we had a um i think like a casa advocate I can't remember her name, but she came to the school like every Wednesday to visit with us. And I remember trying to tell her what was going on and she would always tell me, well, I'll talk to, you know, your caseworker. When we got home that day from school, Kristen and Steve had already known what you talked about with her. And we were punished with, you know, the physical exercise and it was, just awful because we couldn't tell nobody and when the bruises started becoming more obvious and dakota's malnutrition became more obvious um a woman at casper family connections her name's lauren um lauren had tried to report it and it went it went uninvestigated and it was found unsubstantiated what about the DFS visit? So they come over to the house. They do, is there always kind of a warning, like, "Hey, we're gonna come over," so you could tell, like, that maybe the parents were, Kristen and Stephen were kind of getting things ready. What was that like? Sometimes there was warnings, and when there were warnings, you know, we were never alone in these visits with the DFS worker. Someone was always sitting right there, whether it was Steve, Kristen, or both somebody was always sitting in on these visits with the dfs workers but even on the chances they weren't when we tried to tell our caseworkers just what was going on it was always kristen and steve always found out what we said and we always got in trouble for it how did you cope with that like were you so heartbroken that you were suffering in silence and nobody was really able to penetrate that i couldn't understand it i was seeing like all these friends they had and you know when the when it came time for them to get that award all i could think was but that's not what's happening but they're not these good people this isn't real Mm. and you know it affected me to this day i i had trust issues since the very beginning after leaving i couldn't just resume my normal life i couldn't hang out with my cousins who had been my closest friends since i was born and i couldn't even hang out with them anymore because i just had no trust for guys or men or people i I couldn't go to the grocery store i rarely left my house i couldn't keep any friends i wonder socially yeah some of that is that partly because you were so isolated on the mountain and then you got to go to school and that was it. There weren't a whole lot of extracurriculars, right? No, I we didn't celebrate things like Halloween or Valentine's Day or 
anything like that. You know, Christmas was really the only exception and Easter, but those were just sit home, watch church days, you know, and it, it caused a lot of issues with that being the only contact I was getting living up there. I, I didn't make any friends at school because I couldn't go to sleepovers. I couldn't have sleepovers. Let's talk about the church thing. Um, do you remember what the church was called? Mm, so most of the time on Sundays, we really just did like a TV program. We rarely ever went out. Okay. I think we only ever went out to a church function like once. And I can't even remember where it was. What about the cameras? Were there cameras all throughout the house? There were cameras and alarm systems, yeah. I knew that there was one in, like, the mudroom, which was really the primary entrance that us kids used. Um, I know there was one by the front door and by the downstairs door. But not in private spaces, to your knowledge, I guess. To my knowledge about the private... Well, there was one in our closet, which is why my sisters and I always changed in our bedroom and not our closet, because we had seen the one in the closet. I wonder why a camera would be in a closet. That's just odd. Do you think it's possible that there's recorded sex acts? I wouldn't put it past anyone for that to be a thing. There are only four victims in the charging documents. Um, do you think there are in actuality more than that? From what I know, there's been more than 70 kids that have gone in and out of that home. So for there to think that there's just four of us, I I wouldn't put it past there to be more than just us. And there's so much fear involved and coming forward with, you know, speaking out against them. It seems to be, um, it's rare. And I just wonder if more will come out. Um, so when do you finally get to go back to your real home? We went back to my real mom, I want to say either in April or May of 2014 or 2015. It's a little blurry on the years because I can't remember my age now and can't do simple math. Oh, you're um, fine. Me neither. Cause, yeah, because I was like, I just turned 20 and I celebrated my 10th birthday up there. And made it home in time to celebrate my 11th. And then uh, from charging documents, it looks like there was a disclosure. Uh, one of you told your mom. She asked the other girls. Um, and it was confirmed that a sexual assault had happened. Right? Yeah. So I, I finally told my mom what had happened. And... I only told my mom what had happened because I had felt so bad watching my mom struggle with everything that Isabel had just gone through with this trial and all these things. And I was like, my, my mom deserved to know. I couldn't live with it anymore. Nobody can understand why all of a sudden I didn't want to hang out with anybody. I didn't want to play with my nieces and nephews. I didn't want to hang out with my brother and everybody was getting worried, so I finally told my mom. I was like, Mom, you know, this happened. It wasn't just the beating and the bruises. This happened. Hmm. And my mom 
was just crying and she was angry and she couldn't believe it. And so she asked my other sisters and Isabel denied it. And when she looked at Dakota, Dakota couldn't even look her in the eye and just was stone statue. And my mom had to ask her a couple more times if that had happened to her too, before she finally said something. How do you sit with that stagnant period where nothing, no prosecuting is happening? It took so long for him to get arrested. Now he's currently out on bond. What's that like for you? When the first investigation started back when we, you know, when we first made these reports, I remember my mom coming home from a meeting with the detective and she was just angry so i've never seen my mom this mad and you know i i asked her what happened and she told us what the detective had said that because dakota was so withdrawn and refused to talk and the fact that i had too much of an adult vocabulary that we had to be lying it must have been frustrating that people didn't believe you it was awful because you know We spent forever up there, and we tried to tell everybody. We told our grandma, we told our mom, we told the caseworkers. And every time, you know, it was just swept under the rug, like, oh, no no big deal. And then all of a sudden, they're getting this award for excellency from the governor. And I'm like, nobody checks in on these people. Nobody checks in on us. How do you know they're doing so great? You're just taking them at their word for it. Do you think the violence was worse against the boys? Sometimes there were some cases where the boys had it physically worse than we did. Outside of sexual abuse, obviously, that's probably the most horrific thing that could happen to a person. Yeah. Outside of what was happening to us, the boys were the ones who would get punished more severely for small little actions. Hmm. Like, one of the boys... um, his name was Rutledge. He he uh, he pottied in the bed, so he wet his bed once, and they made him stand there without underwear, without pants, without shoes and socks, and he had to stand outside and wash his sheets and his underwear in a bucket outside with the hose. How old was he? Five or six at the time. How much of seeing your siblings get abused also weighs on you? It weighs on me to this day because I feel like I constantly have to be everybody's protector, that I have to do everything or else it's all going to go wrong. And for the longest time, I had dreams up there of just loading my sisters into a wagon and just pulling them down the mountain myself. And I always waited, like, what if I get lost or something? And all I can think is getting lost and dying out here is better than dying up there. Did you, when you left, ever see Kristen or Steven again? Yeah. So I didn't go outside, but they came down to bring us our clothes and stuff that we had left there. My mom and my Aunt Desiree met them at the door to get our stuff. We didn't go outside to get our stuff. But I went to a church event with my grandma Connie probably about, a year after we left and it was probably around Easter time and my grandma liked going to these church things and we always went with her 
and I was there with my cousins and everybody, and I looked um, at the pews about two rows behind me because I kept hearing my name being said, and I thought it was my cousin Josiah, but Josiah was sitting on the other side, so I was like, couldn't have been him. And I turned around, and it was purity trying to get my attention. And I saw all of them, all of them had come for this church event. I was like, that's so bizarre. But I also felt afraid to be there. Like all of a sudden, they're there. Everything I was trying to get better at, just down the drain. If you did have to see him again, what would you as an adult, as a woman now, what would you say to him? I've thought about that question for a very long time. And some part of me wants to think, you know, you can't hide from this anymore. But another part of me wants to curl up and hide from him. Is there a lot of fear at this point that, I mean, he he may not be taken into custody. He may not be found guilty. I, I am afraid that he'll walk free. That's something that... I know a lot of people really are afraid of. And in my head, I've been dealing with this trauma and that constant fear of seeing them again in public for the last 10 years. Oh. And I, I don't feel like if he gets away with it, my life would go back to the way it was. You know, at some point I had given up hope that anything would ever be done. It was just something folded up and tucked neat and tidy into the back of my brain until I got that call that someone from the sheriff's office wanted to talk to me. And I don't think life could go back to normal if he walks free. I don't think there's a community that would go back to normal if he walks free. And I know that there's all of these families who, if he walks free, probably wouldn't hesitate to do something themselves. Do you think that he would reoffend if given the opportunity? I think so. But the reason I also think he wouldn't at the same time is because there's nowhere else for him to hide anymore. You know, the public knows the business he owns. People know where he lives. People have seen his face. There'll never be a person who looks at him the same and just thinks that's a normal guy. They'll be afraid for their children, for themselves. They'll be like, this guy was accused of doing all these terrible things. You know, he's not a good person. What do you think is just? He deserves to go away for the rest of his life. He took away that innocence that was, you know, supposed to be my childhood. He ruined my life. He ruined my ability to do anything as I got older. I never dealt with that trauma. I could never get over it knowing he was still there. And these girls that I had known and grown to know as my friends and my family were still there. And I couldn't see them. I couldn't talk to them. I didn't even know if they were still alive. Was there like a sense of shame or like, did they kind of give you the impression that you kids were bad because of the broken homes that you had come from? Yeah, we we felt like we were less than them. You know, our, we were constantly reminded, you know, 
my mom's a drug addict. My brother is also a drug addict. You know, we were constantly reminded, you know, my grandma's sick and she's not getting better and no one's coming to get us. And we're not going home to our mom. And we were always told we were never going home to our mom. And that since we were such bad kids, we weren't going to see our mom again. And just it was a constant reminder that we weren't like them. We were less than them. As somebody who survived this, what do you, for people who haven't gone through something like this, I, I guess, what are some of the signs that we might miss? Like, what are things that now you, you will go, that's a red flag? So a lot of things change with, and it turns, they are just subtle changes, but there can be things in change of eating habits and dressing habits, the way somebody talks, the way somebody moves. You can also notice it in a lot of um, just like small telltale signs. You'll notice eye contact. I couldn't look my mom in the eyes and tell her anything. I couldn't even look her in the eyes and tell her I loved her when all this was happening. Because I felt like it was wrong for me to be telling her that I loved her because I didn't feel like I could love anybody who let this happen to me. Hmm. And it really is hard. How do you go on? Like, I'm really glad you're here. I'm glad that you're you're continuing to fight every day for yourself. How do you do that? Honestly, I wasn't planning on making it past 16. It was not my plan to be here today. I have made several attempts on my own life in hopes that it would just be done. And on the times it didn't work, I always wondered why. And it's taken me years. And sometimes I still have, you know, thoughts of this isn't getting better. But at the end of the day, I think about all the things that I've to help do good in the world are all the people who I know are waiting for me or are going to not understand why one day I'm just gone. I have a handful of nieces and nephews I've helped raise some that are still growing up. I have my partner who, you know, is always waiting for me and I couldn't imagine being on the receiving end of, you know, this person's not coming home one day. I saw how it affected my mom to hear that her husband wasn't coming home. I couldn't imagine what it would be like to hear that her her daughter's never coming home. And I guess my word of advice for this is it's awful. It feels terrible. And I know it feels like it's not going to get better. And sometimes even with time, it still feels awful. But it's up to you to either let it continue to eat away at your life and feel awful. Or you can still get help and it will still hurt, but it does get better. This concludes my interview with Adriana Wogan. We will be keeping you posted on the status of Stephen Marler's criminal case. This is Colby Fedor.